This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time is a concept that weighs heavily on almost everybody. You can often feel like you don't have enough time, like it's a tangible asset you keep in a savings account. But imagine for a moment that time was unlimited. How would you use it? Would you spend it meditating for as long as your heart desires? Would you read book after book? Would you just take a nice nap? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. Speaking with a therapist on a regular basis is a great way to increase your self-awareness and self-esteem. Deal with overthinking. Build a greater sense of purpose. Alter negative thoughts and behaviors. Develop healthy coping mechanisms. Improve your communication skills and much more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, plus switch therapist at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash Allen today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Allen. We simply cheated ourselves the whole way down the line. We thought of life by analogy with a journey, with a pilgrimage, which had a serious purpose at the end. The thing was to get to that end, success or whatever it is, or maybe heaven after you're dead. But we missed the point the whole way along. It was a musical thing, and you were supposed to sing or to dance while the music was being played. Welcome to Being in the Way, the Alan Watts podcast. I'm your host, Mark Watts, and today we're going to be listening to Coincidence of Opposites, the first talk in a seminar called Learning the Human Game that was given in 1965 at the University of Michigan. In the next episode, we'll hear part two of this seminar, which hasn't been aired before. And both of these talks are wonderful examples of my father speaking and working with a small group in this case, psychology and philosophy grad students. So here's Alan Watts in the first session of Learning the Human Game, Coincidence of Opposites. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time is a concept that weighs heavily on almost everybody. You can often feel like you don't have enough time, like it's a tangible asset you keep in a savings account. But imagine, for a moment that time was unlimited. How would you use it? Would you spend it meditating for as long as your heart desires? Would you read book after book? Would you just take a nice nap? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. Speaking with a therapist on a regular basis is a great way to increase your self-awareness and self-esteem. Deal with overthinking. Build a greater sense of purpose. Alter negative thoughts and behaviors develop healthy coping mechanisms, improve your communication skills, and much more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, plus switch therapist at any time for no additional charge. 
Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Allen today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Allen. It's really a very unorthodox and unacademic thing to do to start a discussion with a group of psychologists on the subject of metaphysics. But we have to do that. Because a lot of people say that their approach to life is scientific as distinct from metaphysical and that metaphysics is bosh anyway. But everybody, by virtue of being a human being, is willy-nilly a metaphysician. That is to say, everybody starts from certain fundamental assumptions as to what is the good life, what he wants, what are his, uh, shall we say, axioms for living. And I find that psychologists tend to be blind to these fundamental assumptions. Maybe it's truer of psychiatrists than it is of psychologists, but uh, they tend to feel that they are scientists. They're rather bending over backwards to have a scientific status, because that, of course, is fashionable in our age. But, you know, it's so amusing that when, say, let's take psychoanalysis, for example, as pointed out to many philosophers, that their philosophical ideas are capable of being shown to have a psychoanalytic reference. For example, John Wisdom wrote a book about the philosophy of Berkeley, in which he attributed a great deal of his point of view to his experiences in toilet training as a child. The philosopher is very grateful to the psychoanalyst for revealing to him his unconscious and its emotional contents. But the psychoanalyst must in turn await a revelation from the philosopher as to his philosophical unconscious and the unexamined assumptions which lie in it. So, if I may start by insulting your intelligence with what is called the most elementary lesson. The thing that we should have learned before we learned 1, 2, 3, and ABC, but somehow was overlooked. Now, this lesson is quite simply this, that any experience that we have through our senses, whether of sound or of light or of touch, is a vibration. And a vibration has two aspects, one called on and the other called off. Vibration is, seems to be propagated in waves, and every wave system has crests and it has troughs. And so life is a system of now you see it, now you don't. And these two aspects always go together. For example, sound is not pure sound. It is a rapid alternation of sound and silence. And that's simply the way things are. Only you must remember that the crest and the trough of a wave are inseparable. Nobody ever saw crests without troughs or troughs without crests, just as you don't encounter in life people with fronts but no backs. Just as you don't encounter a coin that has heads but no tails. And although the heads and the tails 
the fronts and the backs, the positives and the negatives, are different, they're at the same time one. And one has to get used fundamentally to the notion that different things can be inseparable. That what is explicitly two can at the same time be implicitly one. If you forget that, very funny things happen. If therefore we forget, you see, that black and white are inseparable, and that existence is constituted equivalently by being and non-being, then we get scared. Because, you see, the human awareness is a very odd mechanism. I don't think mechanism is quite the right word, but it'll do for the moment. That is to say, we have as a species specialized in a certain kind of awareness, which we call conscious attention. And by this, we have the faculty of examining the details of life very closely. We can restrict our gaze, and it corresponds somewhat to the peripheral field, I mean the, the central field of vision in the eyes. We have central vision, we have peripheral vision. Central vision is that which we use for reading, for all sorts of close work, and it's like using a spotlight, whereas peripheral vision is more like using a floodlight. Now, civilization and civilized human beings for maybe 5,000 years, maybe much longer, have learned to specialize in concentrated attention. Even if a person's attention span is short, he is, as it were, wavering his spotlight over many fields. The price which we pay for specialization in conscious attention is ignorance of everything outside its field. I would rather say ignorance than ignorance, because if you concentrate on a figure, you tend to ignore the background. You tend, therefore, to see the world in a disintegrated aspect. You take separate things and events seriously imagining that these really do exist, when actually they have the same kind of existence as an individual's interpretation of a Rorschach blot. They're what you make out of it. In fact, our physical world is a system of inseparable differences. Everything exists with everything else. But we contrive not to notice that, because what we notice is what is noteworthy. And we notice it in terms of notations. Numbers, words, images. What is notable, noteworthy, notated, noticed, is what appears to us to be significant, and the rest is ignored as insignificant. And as a result of that, we select from the total input that goes to our senses only a very small fraction. And this causes us to believe that we are separate beings 
isolated by the boundary of the epidermis from the rest of the world. And you see, this is also the mechanism involved in not noticing that black and white go together. Not noticing that every inside has an outside. And that the inside, what's inside, goes on inside your skin is inseparable from what goes on outside your skin. Do you see that, uh, for example, in the science of ecology, one learns that a human being is not an organism in an environment, but is an organism hyphen environment. That is to say, a unified field of behavior. If you describe carefully the behavior of any organism, you cannot do so without at the same time describing the behavior of the environment. And by that you know that you've got a new entity of study. You are describing the behavior of a unified field. But you must be very careful indeed not to fall into old Newtonian assumptions about the billiard ball nature of the universe. The organism is not the puppet of the environment. Being pushed around by it. Nor, on the other hand, is the environment the puppet of the organism being pushed around by the organism. The relationship between them is, to use John Dewey's word, transactional. A transaction being a situation like buying and selling, in which there is no buying unless somebody sells and no selling unless somebody buys. So that fundamental relationship between ourselves and the world which is in an old-fashioned way by people such as Skinner, who, have n who has not updated his philosophy, interpreted in terms of Newtonian mechanics. He interprets the organism as something determined by the total environment. He doesn't see that in a more modern way of talking about it, we're simply describing a unified field of behavior, which is nothing more than what any mystic ever said. That's a dirty word uh, in the modern academic scientific environment. But um, if a mystic is one who is sensibly or even sensuously aware of his inseparability as an individual from the total existing universe, he is simply a person who has become sensible, aware through his senses of the way ecologists see the world. So when I'm in academic circles, I don't talk about mystical experience. I talk about ecological awareness. Same thing. Now then, that's the first step, it seems to me, in what I want to present to you. But I called all this the human game, or learning the human game. And uh, so the next aspect of our metaphysical introduction must be about games. You know, I think there are really four questions that all philosophers have discussed from the beginning of recorded time. First is who started it? The second is are we going to make it? The third is where are we going to put it? 
And the fourth is who's going to clean up? When you think these over, it poses a fifth question. Is it serious? And that's the one I want to discuss. Is existence serious? Like you say, to, Doctor, um, after he's looked at your x-ray picture, is it serious? What does that mean? It means, uh, am I in danger of not continuing to survive? The question is, ought I to continue to survive? In other words, must I survive? If life is serious, then of course I must survive. If it is not serious, it really doesn't matter whether I do or I don't. Now, in Western culture, it is practically a basic assumption that existence is serious. This is particularly true among people who call themselves existentialists. When they talk about a person who exists authentically, they mean that he takes his life seriously and other people's lives seriously. But the poet and uh, essayist G.K. Chesterton once observed that the angels fly because they take themselves lightly. And if I may venture into mythology, if the angels take themselves lightly, how much more so the Lord of the angels? <laughs> but you see, we have been brought up in a mythological context where the Lord God definitely does take himself seriously and is indeed the serious person. So that when we go into church, laughter is discouraged in the same way as it's discouraged in court. This is a serious matter. And everybody has to have the right expression on their faces. Because this is the great, great authority figure. This is Grandpa. This is all you kids, you know. And we don't realize that he has a twinkle in his eye. Now, therefore, you see, uh, the mythologies under which the West has. Uh, developed its culture, are first of all, uh, the, the first great mythology is that the universe is an expression of the very, very serious purpose of the Lord God. Rather uncomfortable mythology, as a matter of fact, and people couldn't stand it. Imagine, you're being watched all the time by your creator, who loves you dearly, but in the spirit of this is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you and who you never escape from his judgment. You get the idea, lots of preachers emphasize this, you're under judgment the whole time, and that, that this goes into modern existentialist theory, that the human being, to be authentically human, has to have ontological guilt. But that's awful, you know, to be watched all the time. I know a, a very humorous convert to Catholicism, and she's got in her toilet, an old-fashioned toilet, you know, with a tank and a pipe going down to the john. And uh, on this pipe, she has a little notice. It shows an eye. And underneath, in Gothic lettering, it says, Thou, God, seest me. 
Well, you know, it just became too much so that at the end of the 18th century, roughly, the fashion began to change and we developed a new mythology. And this one says the universe is not intelligent at all. It has no presiding mind over it. It's simply mechanism. And the fact that there is intelligence in it at all is due to a fluke. Human beings just happen to evolve in the process of natural selection. And uh, they're, it's a pity in a way, because you're something like a mouse caught in a cotton gin. And uh, if you're going to make your life comfortable, you've got to fight the universe and make it submit to your own peculiar purposes. But you're a foreigner in it. Even though you evolved out of it, you're a fluke. Because the thing is actually witless. It's the product of blind energies. And you see how this reflected itself in the various philosophies of the 19th century that constitute the common sense of most intelligent people in the 20th. When Freud described the nature of the unconscious, he gave it the name libido. And that was, a, that was just name-calling. Libido meant something lusty, brutish, definitely unintelligent. And the process of psych psychotherapy, uh, from that point of view, is very largely saying, now, in the past times, you tried to train your animal and absurd urges by whipping it. In the new days, we are not going to do that. We are going to give it lumps of sugar instead, because we realize that the energies of the unconscious can't just be repressed. They have to be respected, but canalized in a constructive way. So somehow some sort of compromise can be made between the pleasure principle and the reality principle. But you see, this was using a metaphor. Freud used these two metaphors. One, that the unconscious is the horse, and the ego is the rider. The other is that the psychological construction of man is a system of hydraulics, damming up repressing, or letting the flow of free association come out. All these are hydraulic metaphors. And we have no evidence that the human psyche or the human nervous system is a hydraulic system. But, I mean, these metaphors, uh, we have to use them. Because metaphors or myths are our tools for making sense of the world. Only just so long as we realize what we're doing. And don't take them too seriously. But you see, when we substituted the mechanical metaphor for the creator metaphor, incidentally, that's based on ceramics. Uh, in the book of Genesis, the Lord God makes Adam out of the dust of the ground. This is a pottery business. <laughs> and then he breathes the breath of life into the nostrils of this figurine. So everybody... By taking that metaphor too literally, they think the world is made, that it's a construct, and that somebody knows how it's done. And it's natural for a child to ask its mother, how was I made? Which is a very weird question. But underneath both these metaphors is a definite feeling that the world is serious. In the first one, it's the serious purpose of God, and you better not call it in question, or he'll get angry with you. You watch out. 
You've got to be polite when you're associating with the Lord God. Very polite and watch your P's and Q's. On the other hand, the mechanical metaphor, it's serious too. It's an engineering job. It's efficient. I mean, let's take something like a giraffe. I'm to quote Chesterton again. Once he said, it's one thing to be amazed at a gorgon or a griffin, a creature that doesn't exist. But it's of a much higher order to look at a rhinoceros, a creature that does exist and looks as if it doesn't. <laughs> and so in the same way, the giraffe, with that long neck and all the spots over its skin. Some people always say about giraffes, well, there's nothing irrational about a giraffe. It's got a long neck so that it can eat branch, it leaves off high trees, and it's spotted so as to disappear into the forest and not be seen by its enemies. Well, I mean, that's a sort of engineering conception of a giraffe. Other people would say, it's slightly the same thing, but in a different form, just because there were creatures with long necks and spots, they could eat uh, better than creatures that didn't have let necks that long in that kind of environment, and because they were spotted, they weren't seen by their enemies, and so they survived. But this still, you see, is an interpretation of the world that is based on the notion, the myth, that the one instinct that everything has is to survive. If the wasp didn't. <laughs> uh, now, uh, this idea of an instinct to survive is similarly a Newtonian a mechanical and hydraulic idea. When a creature exists, it is at the same time surviving. In other words, things go on as long as they do go on, and then they don't. Now, explain that. Well, we have to drag in something to explain it. And so we invent an instinct for survival, which is a force that motivates this in the same way when a billiard ball moves, it has to have a cue to hit it. But actually, you don't need that idea at all. It's completely unnecessary. It's a ghost. You're not driven to survive. You don't have drives as if they were something different from you. It's all based on an antiquated notion of causality. You know, when you have a, 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 supposing you have a very narrow slot in a wall, and you look out of it and a cat goes by, you see first the head of the cat, and then there's a kind of blurred cylindrical experience, and then the tail comes. Well, you think, look at that. Then the cat turns around and walks the other way. And you see again, the head comes first, but from the right instead of the left, and then it's followed by the tail. Cat turns around and comes back again. You say, well, isn't that interesting? Every time I see uh, the thing that we'll call head, it is followed by the consequence called tail. And this is cause and effect. Now, actually, if you actually could see beyond the narrow slot, you would see the head and the tail aren't cause and effect. They're simply the cat. They go together. And where cats come with heads and with tails, except Manx cats, which don't have much tail. But never mind. For ordinary purposes, cats come with heads and tails. You don't get a tail cat without a head or a head cat without a tail. So we begin to see, from a more sophisticated point of view, that events that were called causes and effects aren't two events, it's all the same event. 
and we are simply looking at it and chopping it up into two pieces for purposes of description. And we call the first part of it the cause and the second part the effect. So with motivation. An action is not different from its motivation. It's all the same. So who gets motivated? By what? See, all this chopping up and distinguishing between the act and the motivation is a creation of ghosts. It's like saying, it is raining. What is it that is raining? Why, of course, it's the raining. Or a light flashed. What is the difference between the light and the flash? Or the flashing? There is none. Unless you mean a flashlight flashed, which is a little different. But if you say the lightning flashed, why, lightning is flashing. And to separate the lightning from the flashing is to introduce an unnecessary spook. So then, uh, we came in to feeling that uh, we are driven by the great instinct to survive. And therefore, you must survive. It's about the only value anybody can agree on today. Survival value. We want to survive. I mean, we, just, we don't want to just continue to exist, but we want to exist fairly elegantly. But you must go on. So here, here is the thing, you see. You must survive. And if I want to check out and I feel life is lousy, and I, but I mustn't because I'm responsible. I have dependents. And uh, I must support them, take care of my uh, mature commitments. But you see, the trouble is, if you drag on to help your children, your children will learn to drag on to help their children. And they'll go and survive compulsively, too, and teach everybody to do the same. Now, look here. What is survival? I've said that survival is the same thing as being. The thing is, as long as it is, and then it isn't. That's survival. But it isn't something that you must do. Just in the same way, look here, if you said to a person, in order to be human, you must have a head. Is that a commandment? Or is it simply the expression of a state of affairs? Obviously, it's a state of affairs. We don't see people running around trying to have heads. All right, a mother says to a child, you must have a bowel movement after breakfast every day. The child gets it as a commandment. Darling, try to go to sleep. Worse still, you must love me. In other words, not of course, all good children love their mothers. And I don't want you to do it because I say so, but because you really want to. Did you ever ask your husband or wife, darling, do you really love me? And get the answer, well, I'm trying my best to do so. But <laughs> 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 well, here's the nub of the matter, you see. The confusion between the expression of a state of affairs and a commandment. And as a result of that, you get the situation we call the double bind. Which is, in essence, saying, you are required to do something which will be acceptable only if you do it voluntarily. Now, existence, you see, is something that is spontaneous. The Chinese word for nature, zhan, 
means that which happens of itself. Your hair grows by itself. Your heart beats by itself. You breathe pretty much by itself. Your glands secrete their essences by themselves. You don't have voluntary control over these things. So we say it happens spontaneously. So when you go to sleep and you try to go to sleep, you interfere with the spontaneous process of going to sleep. Try to breathe, you know, real hard, and you find you get balled up in your breathing. So uh, if you're, you're going to be human, you just have to trust yourself to have bowel movements and go to sleep and digest your food. Uh, of course, if something goes seriously wrong and you need a surgeon, that's another matter. But by and large, uh, the healthy human being doesn't, right from the start of life, need surgical interference. And he lets it happen by, by itself. So with the whole picture, that is fundamental to it. You've got to let go and let it happen. Because if you don't, you're going to be all clutched up. You're going to be constantly trying to do what can happen healthily only if you don't try. But we have a strange anxiety in us that if we don't interfere, it won't happen. Now, that's the root of an enormous amount of trouble. But the basis of it all is this, then. If we say, you must survive, or I must survive, life is earnest, and I've got to go on, then your life is a drag and not a game. Now, it's my contention, my personal opinion, this is my basic metaphysical axiom, shall we put it that way, that existence, the physical universe, is basically playful. There is no necessity for it whatsoever. It isn't going anywhere. That is to say, it doesn't have some destination that it ought to arrive at. But that it is best understood by analogy with music. Because music, as an art form, is essentially playful. We say you play the piano. You don't work the piano. Why? Music differs from, say, travel. When you travel, you are trying to get somewhere. And, of course, we, because being a very compulsive and purposive culture, are busy getting everywhere faster and faster and faster till we eliminate the distance between places. I mean, with the modern jet travel, you can arrive almost instantaneously. And what happens as a result of that is that the two ends of your journey become the same place. You know, you can get from San Francisco to Honolulu faster then you can get from San Francisco to San Jose, practically, especially in, a, in Russia, which is 60 miles away. Now, that means that San Francisco, or worse still, Los Angeles, and Honolulu become the same place. And so the tourist says, 
I wonder about going to Hawaii. Has it been spoiled yet? The answer is yes. It's become the same place as you're starting from. There's no point going there for a vacation, because it's just like going down the block. That's the result, you see, of abolishing limitations. Of getting too compulsive. So you eliminate the distance, and you eliminate the journey. Because the fun of the journey is to travel, not to obliterate travel. So then, in music, though, one doesn't make the end of a composition the point of the composition. If that were so, the best conductors would be those who played fastest. <laughs> and there would be composers who wrote only finales. <laughs> People go to a concert just to hear one crashing chord, because that's the end. <laughs> Same way in dancing. You don't aim at a particular spot in the room. That's where you should arrive. The whole point of the dancing is the dance. Now, but we don't see that as uh, something brought by our education into our everyday conduct. We've got a system of schooling which gives a completely different impression. It's all graded. And what we do is we put the child into the corridor of this grade system with a kind of, come on, kitty, kitty, kitty. And yeah, you go to kindergarten, you know, and that's a great thing because when you finish that, you'll get into first grade. And then come on, first grade leads to second grade and so on. And then you get out of grade school, and you've got high school and it's revving up. The thing is coming. Then you're going to go to college. And by Jove, then you get into graduate school. And when you're through with graduate school, you go out to join the world. And then you get into some racket where you're selling insurance. And they've got that quota to make. And you're going to make that. And all the time, this thing is coming. It's coming. It's coming. That great thing, the, the success you're working for. Then when you wake up one day about 40 years old, you say, my God, I've arrived. <laughs> I'm there. And you don't feel very different from what you always felt. And there's a slight letdown because you feel there's a hoax. And there was a hoax. A dreadful hoax. They made you miss everything by expectation. Look at the people who live to retire and put those savings away. We simply cheated ourselves the whole way down the line. We thought of life by analogy with a journey, with a pilgrimage, which had a serious purpose at the end. And the thing was to get to that end, success or whatever it is, or maybe heaven after you're dead. But we missed the point the whole way along. It was a musical thing, and you were supposed to sing or to dance while the music was being played. But you had to do that thing. You didn't let it happen. And so, for this, in this way, the human being sometimes becomes an organism for self-frustration. Let's take uh, Kozhebsky called man a time binder. That means that he's the animal peculiarly aware of the time sequence. And as a result of this, is able to do some very remarkable things. He can predict. He studies what's happened in the past, and he says the chances are so-and-so of that happening again. So he predicts. 
thought is very useful to be able to predict because that has survival value. But at the same time, it creates anxiety. You pay for this increased survival ability involved in prediction by knowing that in the end you won't succeed. You're all going to fall apart by one way or another. It might happen tomorrow. It might happen 50 years from now. But it all comes apart in the end. And people get worried about that. They get anxious. So what they gained on the roundabout, they lost on the swings. So then, if you see, on the other hand, that existence, this is, as I said, my basic metaphysical assumption, which I won't conceal from you, that existence is musical in nature. That is to say that it is not serious. It is the play of all kinds of patterns. We can look upon different creatures as we look at different games, as we look at chess, checkers, backgammon, tennis. There's the tree game, the beetle game, the grass game. Or you can look at them as you look at different styles of music, mazurkas, waltzes, um, sonata, etc., etc., all down the line. There are all these different things doing their stuff. And they're going to do to do to do to do to hoo do 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 you know, in different rhythms. And we're doing that. If you were in a flying saucer from Mars or somewhere, and you came and looked to try and make out what was living on this world, from about 10,000 feet at night or early morning, you would see these great ganglia with tentacles going out all over the place. And early in the morning, you see little uh, blobs of luminous particles going into the middle of them. See? And then uh, in the late afternoon or early evening, it would spit them all out again. And they say, well, this thing, this thing breathes. And it does it in a special rhythm. It goes in and out, in and out, in and out, once every 24 hours. But then it rests a day and doesn't spit so much. It just spits in a different way. That's a kind of irregularity. And then it starts spitting all over again the same way. Well, I say that's very interesting. That's the kind of thing we, we have. See? This is something that goes this way. <laughs> just like uh, music goes... Did you ever see a lady go this way, go that way? That's what it does. And when people, uh, when you think a bit what people really want to do with their time, what do they do when they're not being pushed around and somebody's telling them what to do? They like to go, uh, they like to make rhythms. They listen to music, they dance, or they sing, or they do something of a rhythmic nature, playing cards or bowling or raising their elbows. <laughs> You've been listening to Alan Watts in a talk from the seminar, Learning the Human Game. This one was the first session, Coincidence of Opposites. And this podcast was co-produced with the Ram Dass Be Here Now podcast network. For further information about the spoken word recordings of Alan Watts, please visit alanwatts.org. And also, thank you to Moment Records for use of our theme music by Zakir Hussein from his Rhythm Experience album. Again, I'm Mark Watts. This has been Being in the Way. And you'll find more information at the alanwatts.org website.
This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time is a concept that weighs heavily on almost everybody. You can often feel like you don't have enough time, like it's a tangible asset you keep in a savings account. But imagine for a moment that time was unlimited. How would you use it? Would you spend it meditating for as long as your heart desires? Would you read book after book? Would you just take a nice nap? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. Speaking with a therapist on a regular basis is a great way to increase your self-awareness and self-esteem. Deal with overthinking. Build a greater sense of purpose. Alter negative thoughts and behaviors. Develop healthy coping mechanisms. Improve your communication skills and much more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, plus switch therapist at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash Allen today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Allen.